Good morning. So I mentioned earlier I came from the men's retreat and uh, I got uh, stuck in the snoring side. They actually divided people up this time. And so I sometimes snore and sometimes don't. My wife would probably say, no, you snore all the time. Um, but if I'm really tired, I do, and I knew I'd be tired, so I went over there. And it's great if you're like the first person to go to sleep because then you don't wake up. But if you're not, then, you know, yeah. So I'm really tired today. Uh, but one thing I want to say about the uh, Maple Valley State School dance that we're doing, uh, there, it's a formal theme this year, but don't feel like if you don't have a tux or you don't have a formal dress that you can't come to that. Uh, just come as you are. Um, we would rather you be here than worry about what you're wearing. And um, I'm the DJ, at least I have been in the past. I haven't been officially asked this year, so I don't know if I still am. I may have blown it last year. It might have just been too, fu too funky. Um, but, and you're like, okay, so you're a pastor. What kind of a DJ are you going to be? Listen. Listen. Earth, Wind, and Fire, ever heard of them? Okay, that's all I'm going to say. Anyway, <laughs> um, that has nothing to do with really this. But uh, we are going to start something new today, something different. And I'm pretty excited about this. It's kind of been stewing in my brain for a while. And I uh, wasn't sure that it was even going to happen this year, but it's one of those things where God said, okay, this would be the place to put that, so let's do it here. We are going to start a new series, and we're going to be in John's Gospel for the next five weeks leading up to Easter. And uh, John's gospel is all about the identity of Jesus. Uh, he wants to teach us, basically, and tell us uh, who Jesus is for real. It was written to a primarily Jewish audience. And uh, at the very end of his book, um, in chapter 20, verse 31, John says something interesting. He basically tells us the whole reason that I wrote all of this down for you, the reason that you have this book in your hands, this account of the life of Jesus, the whole reason that you have this, that I'm giving it to you, is because I want you to believe. Which is kind of cool because not all of the gospel writers do that. They don't all tell us necessarily what their intention, what their mission statement is with their book, but John does. He's like, listen, everything you're going to read or that you just read in here, the idea is that I want you to believe. And so uh, we're going to just kind of take it at the beginning. It's one of those things where I can't just jump right in. We're going to be talking about the I am statements of Jesus, the times where he tells us about himself in John's gospel. But you can't really just jump in because we have to kind of establish a few things. And so the first thing we need to know is that John's book begins with a really, really cool uh, picture, this glimpse into the creation of the world. And he kind of, if you look at John's gospel and you look at Genesis 1, they're, they're very similar. And the idea is that in the beginning, when the earth, when everything that we know, everything that we see was being created, that Jesus, the Messiah, was there. And that not only was he there, but he was an agent of creation. He was involved. And so it's like this visual picture where he is sort of the go-between or the in-between uh, heaven and earth as he's making all these things happen. It's really, really, really cool. You should read it. I don't have time to go through it all here. But there's another thing uh, that we learn too. When we look at Exodus 33 and 34, we, we see that that same presence, that same presence that was here at the very beginning creating with God was also there with God's people in the tabernacle. It was that presence in the desert. Jesus was there too. And so there's a reason I'm mentioning these two things. We'll come back to these. So just kind of put a little bookmark in those. But through the rest of chapter one in John's gospel, we have several people that show up and basically tell us who they think Jesus is. And so you have John the Baptist who calls him Lamb of God. You have John and Andrew who both call him Rabbi. You have Andrew who calls him later the Messiah. 
Philip calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael calls him son of God and king of Israel. And then, of course, when Jesus refers to himself, he calls himself the son of man. So you have all of these people who are telling us who they think he is, and then the rest of John's book basically goes through to talk about, okay, so what's the truth in all these statements? I told you guys a couple weeks ago that we like to watch the show at home called uh, The Masked Singer. How many of you guys are aware of what that is? Well, basically the idea is that you've got um, this semi-famous panel of experts. Semi-famous was kind of a joke, but... Um, so you've got these judges, and each week you have these masked celebrities that come on there. And they're celebrities from all walks of life. They're not all singers. They're not all performers. It's all kinds of different people. And they dress in these crazy, outrageous costumes, and they come out and they sing a song. And then the judges the whole time are trying to guess who that person is. And so as it goes on, at the end of the night, America gets to vote for something that matters. And they get to choose who did the best job. And so the person that gets the least votes is the person that's eliminated on the show. And you might think, well, that's really sad and that's really bad and I feel bad for them. No, that's the whole point because that's when we find out who they are. So like you're like, a person may be a great singer, but you're like, I really hope they get eliminated because I want to know who that is. It's very important. We want to know their identity. So the show goes to these great lengths to keep the identities of the performers a secret. And uh, in fact, you can even buy the hoodies that they wear that say, don't talk to me. Not saying that's a great move for um, social interactions, but it's there. Anyway, so there have been all these crazy reveals, people that you could never imagine would decide to do this or showing up on the show. And a lot of times it has to do, uh, well, my kids watch the show and they said, Dad, you should go do that. So they do it, you know, and it's pretty funny. But the masked uh, celebrities, anytime they speak, their voices are disguised. I'm sorry, I decided to do this because... Like, you know, you don't know who they are because they don't want that to give them away. But when they sing or when they perform... They're free to do whatever they want. And so some of them will try to disguise their voice, usually unsuccessfully. And then along the way, we're, of course, we're given clues and descriptions about their identity. So here's why I'm, I'm talking about this. We like to guess at home, right? We, we like to guess who we think people are. And the ones that I've gotten right, and I usually get them right immediately. I either get them right immediately or I don't get them right at all. But the few that I've gotten, uh, Patti LaBelle, Shaka Khan is going to give you an idea of what the Maple Valley State School dance might sound like. And Dionne Warwick, right? And so immediately, as soon as I heard their voices, I knew who they were. Uh, they would share their distinctive gift and they would sing. And it was impossible for them to disguise who they were because their voices are so distinct. It's like, that is totally Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan. Right? Some of you 80s kids know what that is. But... Um, you had no trouble figuring out who they were because they would share their distinctive gift, and there it was, like, okay, I know who that is. The same thing is happening here in John's Gospels. We dip our toe into the water today. Only Jesus isn't hiding. He's not wearing a mask. Jesus is walking the earth. He's sharing his distinctive gifts. And here's the thing. These gifts, healing people, right, speaking into lives, restoring people, all these things, they should totally identify him as Messiah to all of these people who've been waiting for him for years. He heals, he restores, he performs these miraculous signs. God's fingerprints are all over everything that he's doing. These works were considered to be a proof of who Messiah was, right? And while the people are attracted to all the signs 
and the wonders and the really cool things that Jesus is doing, they do not acknowledge God's voice. At least most of them don't. And so there are seven places in John's gospel that Jesus makes a distinctive claim about uh, himself, a definitive I am statement. Now, there are more places where he will say things like I am he and he will agree to things, but there are seven specific ones where he says I am and then he tells us something about himself. But here's what's weird. Each time it happens, people would misunderstand or they would disagree or they would get angry. There's some kind of response as Jesus starts to really reveal himself to these people. And it would force all the people who were present, all the people who could hear his voice, to make a choice about who they think that Jesus is. But before we can talk about his first I am statement, we kind of have to take a few steps back. We're going to be in John chapter 6 today. And there's two miracles that take place before all this happens. Uh, In John 6, Jesus and his disciples, they were on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And John gives us this small detail that doesn't seem that important at first. But he comes, becomes very important when John tells us that Passover was upon them and a large crowd had gathered. So word had spread quickly about Jesus, about him healing the sick, about all of these people who had come to him and their lives had been changed and transformed through these interactions, right? Word spreading quick. Thousands of people were gathered together. Uh, one of the other gospels tells us that they'd been there for three days to hear Jesus, And so it becomes clear that these people need to eat something because they haven't had anything. And so Jesus tells the disciples, okay, I want you guys to feed these, feed these people, right? And so they all start looking at each other and they're stumped because they don't have enough food and they don't have enough money to get food. And then we don't even think of this, but Passover would have totally limited the supply of food for the people who were preparing for that festival, And so, of course, we know the story. Most of us probably do, right? A little kid shows up with his lunchbox. He opens it up. He's got five loaves and two fishes. Jesus blesses it. He breaks it, and he begins sharing it with everybody. And everyone eats, and there's plenty of leftovers. It's a really, really cool story. And then in John 6, 14, when the people saw what Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And note that word, prophet. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. The people are caught up in amazement with the things that Jesus is doing. And scripture tells us that that's when things start to get dangerous. Jesus suddenly withdraws to solitude in the mountain because the people were about to take him by force, it says. He was afraid people were going to take him by force and crown him king. There were some messianic expectations that were happening here. Uh, They expected Rome to be overthrown. Messiah was going to come. Messiah was going to feed people, all these things. They're like, this this is the dude. This is the guy we've been waiting for. But they didn't completely get it. And so they they wanted to basically make a government right then and overtake Rome forcibly. So Jesus goes, hangs out in the mountain, kind of hiding, getting some solitude. And then it says later that night, and you kind of get the idea that maybe this was under the cover of darkness, right? The the disciples decide to sneak off. And so they go to the sea, and they head for Capernaum, but they leave without Jesus. So they get in their boat, and they take off. It tells us that the sea was rough, and it was stormy, and about three or four miles out, the journey would be about six or seven miles. About three or four miles out, so almost halfway, all of a sudden, here comes Jesus, right? He probably didn't walk like that, but you know what I'm saying. I've had the song Sailing by Christopher Cross stuck in my head all week thinking about this, and I don't even know why, but that's not the point. So 
The sea's rough. Jesus comes walking out across the water towards the boat. And the disciples were afraid of the storm, but this tells us that they were even more afraid when they saw Jesus out on the water. I probably would be too. I mean, that's something that you're not going to forget. But here's what's cool. Jesus says, listen, guys, don't be afraid. And as soon as they receive him into the boat, kind of another secret miracle here. As soon as they receive him into the boat, they immediately find that they've reached their destination. Now, they were only halfway across. I don't know how that all happened, but that's pretty interesting to me. So then the next day, the crowd of people on the other side, oh, wake up. Where's Jesus? Dude, where's the disciples? They totally punked us. They're gone, right? And so then they look across like, oh, wow. So they get into the boats, and they head across the water. They load up. They get over there, and as soon as they find Jesus, they say, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now his response is kind of interesting. We're going to pick this up in verse 26. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now that's kind of a weird response to me. It's like, basically they're asking, dude, when did you get here? And this is what he says to them. Jesus is like, listen, you guys aren't looking for what God's doing in my actions. You're here for another free meal, I know. One of the things that we need to know about miracles and about signs, which, by the way, I believe still happen. I believe that God still does miracles. I believe the reason that he wants us to anoint people with oil and pray over them is because he wants to heal them. These things still happen in our world. But there's a reason that God gives us miracles and signs. He does this to awaken our awareness of him and to his presence. I mean, God wants good things for us. Absolutely, that's true. He wants to restore. That's why Jesus came. But ultimately, signs and wonders, these things are supposed to awaken our awareness of God and his presence. And so, like the people in the story, what we do is we often end up seeking signs and we end up seeking wonders instead of seeking Jesus, who's the source, right? The source of all of these miracles. Uh, They were seeking the gifts instead of the giver. And I think that's an important important distinction for us too. So Jesus is like, listen guys, if you want to truly live, don't get caught up in chasing all these things that won't last. You need to put your time and your energy and your focus into things that are eternal, things that will last forever. Jesus bears the imprint of God the Father. And so he's like, listen, if you want to be involved in what God is doing, it begins with trusting me. That's where it begins. So the people, their response is interesting again. They're like, well, can't you give us a clue as to who you are? I mean, if you really want us to trust you, we're going to need to see a miracle or a sign of some kind. And then we'll commit ourselves to you. After all, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Now remember, they just saw Jesus do a pretty amazing miracle just the day before, right? I mean, just the day before. No explanation. No idea how that happened feeding as many as 20,000 people, right? We only get the the head count of all of the men that were there. Sorry, ladies. But what that really means is if you add the women and then, of course, the scads and scads and scads of children, which is how we like it, 20,000 people probably were there that he fed with a sack lunch. But the people are like, we want to see something greater. What? What? 
So then they say, you know, in the Tanakh, it says that he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The he that they're referring to, by the way, in the scripture, they think, they believe that it's Moses. They believe that it's Moses that gave them the bread. And here's why this is important. In their minds, Moses was the greatest guy to have ever lived, right? He was humble. He was revered. It's like out of all of God's champion people, Moses was top notch. He was the bomb. And so they're like, their comparison to Jesus, they're only comparing him to Moses, right? That's where he's at. And Moses was great, but Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is a whole other level. So their comparison for these miracles only allowed Jesus to be as great as Moses. But their interpretation of the passage is wrong. And let me tell you, you never want to get into a Bible battle with Jesus, okay? He will always win. Just ask Satan, right? He got it handed to him three times, right? No Bible battles with Jesus. The he who provided manna was not Moses. It was God the Father. That's who that refers to. And so here's the response, verse 32. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So Jesus kind of slyly kind of puts that in there at the end. He's like, hello, right? Their response is interesting because they don't even address that. They either, yes, yes, we want this bread. Give it to us now. That's what they say. It's kind of like if you've ever worked over in kids' church, you know, because you've got the chaos that's happening, and it's a controlled chaos. We love your kids, and we don't want them to be hurt, I promise. But you've got kids, right, and all they're doing their kid things, getting crazy, fire trucks, flying stuff, you know, my little ponies, playing in the kitchen, like all that. And then you get out that box of goldfish and you shake it. Like they're all, they're in, man. They're at the table. They're there. It's kind of like cat treats if you've seen that commercial. So you shake that box of goldfish crackers in the toddler room and they're like, gimme, yes, I want that bread now and forever. That's what they're saying, right? It's the same here. These people, they're missing the point completely. Maybe they're expecting Jesus to give them a lifetime supply of manna. That could be what's on their agenda. I mean, it does say that Messiah will feed his people. That's one of the things that they believed would happen. But they're confused. They're really confused about Jesus and his identity. Uh, rabbinic tradition equates manna with the Torah. I, thought, I found this very interesting, but I think it has a lot to do with how Jesus is responding here. God's eternal word was delivered to his people through Moses, right? We know this. He gives them his word, and then Moses takes the word to God's people, and so the people here would have been well aware of this connection, the connection of Moses and manna and bread from heaven, meaning scripture to them. All of this would have been like in their mind as Jesus was saying these things. And it's also no coincidence that all of these things, remember I said this earlier, took place at the time of Passover, which is a feast celebrating God's deliverance of his people from the Egyptians. But not only that, it also celebrates God's continued provision with, of course, bread, unleavened bread, being a prominent symbol in that feast. And if you've never taken part in that, I'm just going to quick commercial again. Uh, Holy Week on that Wednesday, we have our Passover dinner together. It is full of symbolism, full of meaning, and it's a beautiful thing. If you've, even if you've done it before here, I'm going to say this is something we should be doing every year. 
whether it's here or whether it's in our own homes. And so we try to do it here every other year and then have you guys do that on your own, um, in your own way, in your own homes. It's one of the things that God tells us to do, right? One of the things he wants us to observe. And so it's beautiful for all kinds of reasons, but Jesus is also a prominent um, symbol uh, in that story for us. So it's this feast that celebrates God's deliverance. Bread's a prominent symbol in that feast. And so this is where Jesus finally reveals his first defining I am statement about himself. Here's what he says, verse 35 in John 6. He says, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So he's like, listen, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, you're not going to go hungry. If you're trusting in me, you're not going to go thirsty. He's like, I can't make this any clearer to you guys. You see me in action, but yet you still don't believe in me. What's up with that? Well, he goes on, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. He's being very clear here. Here's the will. Here's what God wants. That I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so again, we're reading a lot of this stuff from hindsight. And when Jesus says things like, I am the bread of life, your mind, like mine, probably goes to communion, right? We probably think, well, later on, he's going to talk to his disciples, and he's going to say, yeah, by the way, these symbols from Passover every year, when you do this, I want you to remember me. And here's how I want you to remember that. But you ha- and Jesus may have had that in mind as he's saying this, but none of the people he was speaking to would have. And I think those are important distinctions that we have to remember. So again, they're going back to all these other things. They probably don't have anything like that in mind. God had provided manna to sustain them when he brought them out of Egypt to make them his people. But get this, God is providing Jesus as the bread of life to sustain all who trust in him because he wants to make them his people eternally, which is pretty cool if you think about it. I thought it was cool. (laughs) So... God's like, okay, this thing, this picture, this thing that you're familiar with that's already happened in history, it's happening again. And God does this over and over again, right? He takes these things that we see in the early history of his people, and then we see in the New Testament uh, different applications and whole new ways of how Jesus represents the fullness of all of those things. It's really, really cool. So God provided manna to sustain them when he brought them out of Egypt. He made them his people at that moment. And Jesus is saying, listen, anybody that comes to me I'm the bread of life. And if they trust in me, I will make them my people eternally. And there's another really cool thing that I don't have time to go into here. But uh, if you get caught up in like predestination and chosenness and all that stuff, I know that's a big debate for some people. uh, This passage right here is no better example. The way that you know if you're chosen by God is you go to him. And Jesus says he rejects no one. So there's your answer. I guess I did talk about it. Verse 41, it tells us that some of them grumbled because Jesus claimed to be the bread that came down from heaven. They're like, dude, we know your parents. How do you expect us to believe that? And if you remember, another time God's people grumbled was when they got tired of manna. 
listen, I can only make so many souffles and pancakes and stuff with this. I'm very limited. I need something else. I need meat. Oh, man, again, man, I wish we were back in Egypt. Remember when we would have those onion rings on the side of the Nile? Oh, that was the best, right? Remember all the honey and the graham crackers that we had back in Pharaoh's palace? That was the best. The people grumbled when he provided manna in the desert too, maybe not at first, but over time. They got tired of that stuff and they wanted to return to Egypt. That was what they desired. Their heart was, you know, we should just go back because it was so much better there. In scripture, Egypt is often symbolic of the world that stands opposed to God. So when we see Egypt pop up in the story, a lot of times it's whatever this world is or offers that's in opposition to God. And so it's, that's the case here too. So Jesus is like, listen, stop grumbling because it's God who initiates the trust that you need to have to believe in me in the first place. So basically he's saying, listen, which he's kind of saying it on the sly. He's like, you don't get me because you're out of step with God. That's the problem here. And the only way that you will get me is if you have a spiritual revelation from him. That's the only way that you're going to understand. So we go to verse six, uh, 45 in John 6. <laughs> it, is written by the pro- or it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 54, 13 here. And it describes uh, the triumph of the servant king in his kingdom. It's totally a messianic passage pointing to the eventual servant king that would come or who would come. And of course, Jesus is like, pointing to himself. He's the revelation that they seek. If you want to understand, trust me. That's what he's saying. So we go on in verses 47 through 51. Jesus repeats what he said about being the bread of life and that those who believe in him will have eternal life. Except at the very end in 51, he adds one Not really small detail, but one detail here. He says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's when everyone went, huh? Torah, we know, right? Expressly forbade eating human flesh, which I'm thankful for, right? Cannibalism is wrong, kids. Just want to make sure you understand that. Drinking blood of any kind uh, was forbidden. It was not, I mean, everything about the way that God had them prepare food to make it kosher, all of those things uh, were for this reason. The blood had to be completely drained out of the animal, uh, and of course, people were not to be eaten. It was a great rule to follow, okay? So they're all looking at each other as he says this, and they're like, how can this man give us his flesh to eat, right? And so if it were me, right, and I had dropped this little nugget and everybody had this look on their face, which happens here sometimes, it's going to be clear. What I do is I diffuse that with humor. I do something stupid or I fall over or I say, oh, I'm just kidding, right? Well, Jesus does not do that. Jesus doubles down on this statement, and here's what he says. Verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, how many times are you going to say that, Jesus? 
abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and, is, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. <laughs> That's creepy, right? That's what they're all thinking anyway, like, uh, okay. Now, it might seem strange to us that they couldn't make the jump into symbolism. And just so you know, throughout all of uh, Jewish literature, throughout, I mean, rabbinic literature, symbolism happened, okay? They, they were used to things being used as symbols. So it wasn't that they didn't have the capacity to understand something that was symbolic. It is weird that they don't make the jump. But Jesus already told us, listen, what I'm about to say requires a faith that you're not going to have unless it's revealed uh, through trust in me, right? God's not going to show you this unless you're trusting in me. And so they didn't have it, so they didn't get it. He's like, listen, guys, God's eternal kingdom is here. And if you want to be a part of it, you have to feast on me. <laughs> Scripture tells us that this statement was difficult for even his most dedicated followers to accept. And here's why. Because coming face to face with who Jesus is forces us to make a choice. When we really see him for who he is, and it happens every time he makes an I am statement, suddenly people have to choose whether they believe that statement or whether they don't. This is no mere man speaking. Uh, his life-giving miracles were proof of this. And the Torah, to these folks, like it was the most sacred thing that God's people had. And John's gospel tells us that Jesus is God's word or his Torah made flesh. In other words, he was the living embodiment of God's word, God's revelation of himself, God's will for his people in human form. He is the ultimate example of what it means to live out the Torah. So in other words, only Jesus can offer eternal life and then actually back up that claim. He's the only one. So, here's what happens. Almost everyone except for the 12 disciples leaves. Remember how many people were there? So even if the moms and the kids didn't all make it across the sea for this little powwow, you still had probably at least 5,000 people who in that moment said, you know what, I'm out. Thanks for lunch, see ya, right? See ya, dude. Yesterday's meal was great, but this does not sound good. No, thank you. If you put it in modern terms, his reach as an influencer on Instagram withered to nothing. <laughs> right? So Jesus turns to his 12 who are still there, and I'm sure they're all just kind of like, what just What happened, right? Like, where is everybody going? And Jesus is like, you guys heard what I just said. Are you going to leave too? And I believe it's Peter that speaks up first. And he's like, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Confronted with Jesus, they all make the choice to stay. They've seen, right? They, they saw all these things happen. Even, you know, the lunch thing had to be just completely mystifying to the disciples as they were watching it happen. I tried to visualize that. 
Like, what did that look like exactly? And how did that, you know, they always show it like if you've ever watched Jesus of Nazareth, he's got like a basket and he just keeps pulling things out of the basket, right? And you know, there's some little stage hand that's down there and handing him a fish every time. <laughs> Confronted with Jesus, they make the choice to stay. And so that made me think about when we're confronted with Jesus, who is it that we seek? Like, what do we want? Who do we seek? What or who do we seek? Are you hungry today? Are you dissatisfied? Are you empty? Man, the question I think has to be, who or what are we feasting on? And then, who do we trust to meet the need that we have? And we all have needs. So today we started our study by looking at this story of Jesus feeding the multitudes in John um, chapter 6. And Mark and Matthew also uh, give us this story from different angles. And so I want to talk just a little bit as we wrap this up about kind of what that scene was like. Uh, There's a pastor and author, Warren Wearsby, and he has some really good notes uh, on this passage in John. And so I just want to share a little bit of what his insight uh, kind of inspired to me and maybe what our response should be. And so, remember, the crowd had followed Jesus for three days, and they hadn't eaten, eaten anything, right? And they're there, it's Passover is on, upon them, right? They're faced with this huge problem. And what I love is that the reason that Jesus wants to feed these people is because he has compassion on them, right? Scripture tells us that. He looks out there and sees all these hungry faces. He's like, okay, we got to do something about this, guys. How do we feed all of these people? And so there were four solutions. If you kind of put all the Gospels together, there were four solutions that were proposed. The first solution was this. The disciples in Mark chapter 6, verse 35 and 36, the disciples suggested that they send the people home. (laughs) Which I love that, right? Why don't we just send them home and let them make sandwiches? Like, okay, because we don't have anything here. Which is basically ignoring the problem. I mean, in a way, right? But sometimes we do that same thing I'll speak for myself. Sometimes I do that same thing when it comes to Jesus. My life may be starved for his presence. That's one of the things that we talked about uh, at our men's retreat, like where guys were at and, and uh, you know, that passion that we have when we first meet Jesus and how sometimes uh, that can dissipate. And so it's like our lives are starved for his presence. And so we pretend to maybe not hear him calling us. Like we know that Jesus is asking us to do something or to step up or to get involved, but we just kind of ignore that. Or maybe it's an issue with sin in our lives, or maybe it's just comfort. Like we cling to the comfort rather than joining him at the table, right? He's inviting us to this table to sit with him and to eat, and we just say, you know, I'd rather be comfortable with what I'm doing. Or we choose to fill our plates with everything but him, right? Right? It's like, Jesus, look at, I mean, I've got all the stuff in my weekend. I've got this thing here. I've got this thing here. I mean, you know, I love you, and I love, like, hanging out with you. But, dude, I'm really, really busy right now. But we'll, we'll catch up soon. It'll be good, right? So Jesus knew in the story that these folks were not going to make it home. If we don't feed these guys, they are going to faint on the way home, he says. And the same is true for us. We are not going to make the journey home without Jesus. Like, if he is not the primary component 
of the life that we're trying to live out as his people, we are going to faint. We're not going to make the journey. And so John 6, 5 tells us that Jesus then goes to Philip and he wants to test him. Jesus already knows what he's going to do, which kind of seems... I mean, you know, I know he's trying to be a good teacher. And, you know, if you're a parent, you do that too. You ask your kids questions that you already know the answers to because you want to see what they're going to say. And so Jesus goes to Philip and he wants to test him. So he's like, you know what, dude, where can we buy bread for these people? And Philip's like, ah. <laughs> looking around. So Philip does come up with a solution. He says, you know, we could try to raise enough money to buy food for the people. But then as they start to talk about it, they realize that that's going to be at least 200 days wages. And even if they had the money, they probably were only going just like to get a little bit of bread with that money because of where they were and the scarcity. They would never be able to buy enough bread to satisfy the hunger of all of the men and the women and the children. Remember 20,000 people. Read about it in Matthew chapter 14 verse 21. And for us, like, so often we think that money or resources are going to solve the problem. But we know more money, more problems, right? It's true. And I know some of you are like, listen, give me the lottery. I will try. I will prove you wrong, dude. It, it, time and time again, it's shown that just because you have money, just because you have resources, it doesn't mean that it solves every issue in our lives, especially spiritual issues. But here's the deal, and I know that there's more people than just me that need to hear this today. M money is not a limitation for Jesus. Resources are not a limitation for Jesus, right? So a kid hands him a couple of fish and some barley loaves. We'll read about it here in just a second. And somehow, some way, he's able to make that work. And the same thing is true with us. Like, not just our money. But our time, our resources, our lives, our hearts, he, Jesus can make stuff happen with just a little bit. Like the bread of life is limitless. And so what Jesus really wants to know here, the test for Philip is, he wants to know if Philip trusts him. That's what he wants. And so while that's all happening, Andrew shows up. Hey, I found this kid. And guess what? Inside his Avengers lunchbox, he's got a couple of fish and like five barley cakes, right? I love Andrew. He might be one of my favorite people in all the Bible, and here's why. Because he's always bringing people to Jesus. His name pops up, and it's usually connected with somebody, and Andrew introduced his brother, or Andrew brought this kid to Jesus, or Andrew found this man. Like over and over and over again, I think that's a picture of what we should look like, right? We're always bringing people to Jesus, so this was the third solution, but it was kind of hard, at least it would have been for me, to imagine how this really helps. It's like, what? So this is going to be a snack for the disciples so that we can have enough strength to send all these people home? Like, what, what, what was he thinking? I'm not sure that he even knew, but he's like, we have something here. And here's the lesson, I think, in this one, this third solution, is that we often, as people, measure our lives by what we lack, not what we have. And what I love about Andrew in this situation is like, okay, we may not have all, we do have this. This is what we have. And I think that's an important lesson for us because we all do it, right? We see the thing, the shiny thing that we want, the new model of whatever the thing is, my obsolete phone that's falling apart or whatever it is, and we want the new thing. 
Even spiritually it happens. Like, okay, just being with God isn't good enough for me. I need the goosebumps. Or just this isn't going to cut it. God, I need a new such and such with you. Rather than returning to the things sometimes that we know bring us there with him into his presence. So, so often we measure our lives by what we lack, not what we have. And so, of course, solution number four is the right solution. Jesus knew all along that he was going to do something. And John doesn't tip his hand in the story until the end. Jesus knew he was going to do something. He had a plan to solve the problem. He takes the boy's lunch, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he hands it out to the disciples, and they feed the whole crowd. But here's what's important about this miracle. The miracle took place in the hands of the Savior. Not in the hands of the disciples, not in the resources, not in any of those things. It took place in his hands. He's the one that multiplied the food. The people ate all that they wanted And it says that they were satisfied, but that's not all, right? Because the disciples salvaged 12 baskets of fragments for future use. And here's the point. The Lord wasted nothing, right? Everybody ate, everybody was satisfied, no one went home hungry, and nothing was wasted. So often, we look for something from Jesus rather than looking to Jesus, So are you hungry today? Are you dissatisfied? Maybe you feel like your life is just kind of in a spiritual rut, and it's not like bad or anything necessarily negative that's happening. You just kind of feel like, eh, it's just sort of the same old, same old. Maybe you feel empty today. Listen, Jesus is the bread of life, and nothing is ever wasted in his hands. That includes us, guys. Remember that manna, that heavenly bread, was also a symbol of God's word to his people. And Jesus is God's word made flesh. And so he's like inviting us to come to the table and to feast on him. We're invited to feast through conversation with him and prayer. He longs for that. So many times we make it a have to, oh, got to pray, right? But we don't say that about sitting down with somebody that we love and talking to them, looking into their eyes across the table, right? We're like, that's amazing. We're invited to feast through those conversations with him in prayer. Our hunger can be satisfied even through just meditating on him and the things that he's told us. Spending time in his presence. And of course, his word feeds our soul and it gives us life. But the best part about all these things is Jesus doesn't ask any of us for something that we don't have. He doesn't ask us to be a better person before we come to him. He doesn't ask us to get it together. He doesn't ask us to have the answers. He doesn't ask us to have like Bible quiz knowledge up to level eight. None of that stuff. Jesus doesn't ask for it. All that he asks for is what you have. You. Your heart. That's what he wants. And like, listen, give that to me and I will make the miracle in my hands. I, the miracle comes from my hands. You put your heart in my hands, miracles are going to happen. In his hands, guys, nothing is ever wasted. Would you bow your hearts with me? Oh, Father God, we love you so much. And I thank you for these moments that we have in Scripture where we just get to see real people struggling with real things, God. And it's not hard for us to see ourselves in this story with the doubts 
that we sometimes have, with the confusion that we have. And even times, God, when maybe we don't trust. So I pray that everyone would just be encouraged today. That you ask us for nothing uh, that we don't have. The only thing you ask for is for our hearts and for our trust in you. So my prayer for these people, God, for our men who are at the retreat, God, and I'm so thankful for what you're doing there and just that foundation that you are laying down for what you want this place to be in the future. God, I pray that we would truly be able to just surrender all that we have to you and trust you to make the miracle in your hands. And we know that, that you're good. We sing about it this morning. But God, I also know sometimes we sing it, but we're not completely sure that we believe it. So I pray as we step into this week, as you help our paths to cross with people that need to know that you're real, as uh, we face challenges, as we face triumphs, as all of the, just the wide range of emotions and things that happen in our lives because you've made us to be emotional creatures. I just pray that you would be glorified in every end of that spectrum. And in those moments where we're empty, that you would come and that you would fill us up. In those moments where we doubt, uh, that you would be the revelation that we can trust in. And I pray, God, in each of those moments that you would get all of the glory and all of the honor. We love you and we thank you. All these things are in the name of Jesus. Say it with me. Amen. <laughs>